All opinions expressed in this podcast by participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinion of BioVerge, Inc. or its affiliates. The participants' opinions are based upon information they consider reliable, but neither BioVerge or its affiliates warrants its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied on as such. Nothing contained in and accompanying this podcast shall be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation to purchase any security by BioVerge, its portfolio companies, or any third party. Past performance is not indicative of future results. You're listening to the BioVerge Podcast with Neil Litton. Neil, this week we've got Arvind Gupta and Poe Bronson. Gupta is probably best known as the founder of IndieBio, and Bronson is probably best known as a journalist and author. What are they doing today, and why are they here? Yeah, so today we're going to be discussing their new book, Decoding the World, which is really their their story of their time together at IndieBio. So Arvind is the founder of IndieBio, which is a biotech accelerator based in San Francisco, uh, they have funded a whole wide range of companies spanning um, companies that are utilizing biotech to solve you know, fundamental problems in, in healthcare, in um, sustainability, in agriculture. They've made a lot of investments in, uh, in, in food, for example. So uh, the whole sort of revolution around uh, you know, meatless meat, for example. Um, and so today is going to be a pretty wide ranging discussion, I, I think, around how biotech is applied to a whole host of different industries. How do you think IndieBio's changed the investment landscape? I think they were very early pioneers in this idea of sort of the, the young scientist turned entrepreneur. So when IndieBio first started, right, they, they, they sort of went up against the traditional biotech value creation model which is essentially that uh, you know VCs in the biotech industry would fund uh, very experienced management teams that have you know experienced drug developers with twenty to thirty years of experience, right? And install their own management teams to sort of build you know sort of the old venture creation model, right? They they sort of build a, a, a biotech business. What IndieBio has done is sort of flip that on its head and say, hey, there's this whole new generation of young scientists, postdocs, PhDs, who really don't have access to you know, venture capital, but have great ideas and are looking to you know, bring their ideas to the commercial sector. And so I think in many ways, IndieBio is sort of a, a rebel in their own right. And they fund these sort of you know, contrarians or folks that wouldn't typically get VC money that tend to be maybe, maybe younger um, and I think it's just a really novel approach to funding biotech. And I think a lot of this has been led by this idea of biotechs are now you know, faster and cheaper to start than ever before. And so I don't know if this could have been done 10 years ago, but it's certainly done in, in, you know, since IndieBio has started where companies need hundreds of thousands or you know, low single digit millions to race toward initial proof of concept. Um, that, that was never previously the case. And so I think IndieBio is, is certainly an early pioneer in this area. And how does the book Decoding the World relate to their work at IndieBio? 
Yeah, I mean, they, they talk a lot about the types of companies that they're funding uh, at IndieBio in the book. They talk about uh, longevity. They talk a lot about, um, you know, food tech, for example. They talk a lot about you know, CRISPR and this notion of, you know, designer babies, for example, and how that's actually uh, is a misnomer and that's not actually going to be uh, a future state that we find ourselves living in. Um, so I think what the book does is it really takes this far-reaching breadth of the types of technologies IndieBio has invested in and talks about how it is, is applied to uh, a whole variety of different sectors and how that sort of science fiction technology is actually here today and, and how, how things are changing uh, for the better based on some of this novel technology. Oh, what are you hoping to hear from them today? Yeah, I, I'm hoping to hear, uh, number one, just a, a little bit about the origin story of IndieBio. I mean, how did Arvin come up with this idea when it, it seemed pretty pretty out there, uh, you know, many years ago? And, you know, many VCs were sort of running the other direction, and, and Arvin really sort of embraced this, this novel model, um, both in terms of this, this concept of, you know, the young scientist entrepreneur, but also in, in terms of, you know, investing in, you know, food-related, you know, biotechnology. Uh, that, that wasn't really a thing when IndieBio was started. So I think that's interesting. You know, Poe has, has you know, vast experience uh, in Silicon Valley and the ecosystem. You know, he, he's a, 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 a very well-regarded journalist and writer. He appeared on the cover of Wired. So I'd love to get his thoughts about the evolution of his thinking, what attracted him to IndieBio and, and what he sees uh, in terms of, you know, his, his viewpoint on being a futurist and how that's being applied to sort of biotech and what he's building at IndieBio. If you're all set, let's do it. Arvin, Poe, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm incredibly excited to have you both on the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much for having us. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. We are going to talk today about your new book, Decoding the World, Your Accelerator in the Bio, and Investing in Early Stage Biotech Innovation. Uh, however, before that, uh, I want to just start with uh, a little slice of each of your backgrounds. So Arvin, maybe we can start with you. You are currently a partner at Mayfield. You co-lead their engineering biology practice. And, and actually, even before we get into your background, could, could you maybe just explain to our listeners what engineering biology means to you? Yeah. Uh, so engineering biology is just a simple phrase that refers to uh, the editing of life by all means. Um, so Traditionally, people think about it as DNA, using genetic engineering with introducing new DNA to a cell and having that cell do something new. Um, as we've learned a lot more about biology, we're learning we can, we can engineer cells with electricity and other means. And so it really is this idea that we could make life do things that it couldn't previously do better um, and do things for us uh, that improve our health, uh, both for ourselves and for our planet. And I think that's such an incredible concept that really shows through a lot of what you, you've done at IndieBio. So prior to Mayfield, you were a founder of IndieBio. Mm -hmm. uh, before that, uh, I know you uh, were the design director at IDEO in Shanghai. But mm -hmm. really, among many of your endeavors, something that, that jumped out to me is you, you were, I don't know if you still are, a, a base jumper. <laughs> uh, th th there's probably a lot of analogies we can make between base jumping and investing in early stage biotech. Uh, but one of the things that really surprised me uh, that I read in the book was the goal of base jumping is actually to jump from the lowest object you can rather than the tallest. For listeners not familiar with base jumping, can you explain why that is and, and why you don't search out the, the highest structures you can find? Well, yeah, I mean, look, the higher the object, uh, the more it's like a skydive. 
And so the the actual like jumping off El Capitan, uh, which is a very three thousand tall foot cliff in Yosemite National Park, um, which is illegal to do. So I would never do that, by the way. Um, uh, you know, jumping off of that is, is basically oh, like, <laughs> it, it's like a, it's like a skydive. I mean, my first skydive was at three thousand feet, called a hop and pop. And so, you know, it it it's incredibly exciting from a visual perspective. You can see the cliff right away, but like when you go lower, people just don't understand that. Like, you could jump off a hundred fifty foot bridge, um, and what, what we call free fall that uh nowadays and and now you know things that with the with the advent of wingsuits it's gone back to large cliffs and flying but the goal is always to be in a beautiful world that you can't access in other in other ways and you know that comes from the relative visuals that are happening as you're flying by a building or a cliff or something like that and I think that idea of sort of that beautiful visual and, you know, I think in many ways is is a lot of what both of you have has focused on in terms of creating a, a beautiful world through engineering biology. Okay. Um, Poe, you know, I think most listeners will know you as a writer and journalist uh, rather than a venture capitalist. Your, your most successful book was perhaps What Should I Do With My Life, a book about people finding their true callings. What role did that book have in leading you to IndieBio and sort of refocusing how you spend your time these days? Oh, that's a great question. Because right prior to writing that book, I had spent a lot of time as on the cover of Wired. I wrote for Wired, contributing editor, New York Times Magazine, uh, Wall Street Journal op-ed. I covered tech and I left it to do that book. And I that I felt like Silicon Valley, you know, didn't really need me. I'd help I'd help grow it into a phenomenon through how people conceived and thought about it, encoded a lot of the archetypes which people brought to that world. And is what should I do? When I began a journey of how am I going to make all these things happen? Because the fundamental thing was, I as a person. Uh, was publicly an artist, but I was always doing finance. I was always doing business building. Those just weren't part of my public life. And built organizations, elections, became became a coach on so many levels to so many different people in our society of different types, from the highest of CEOs to ordinary people, to warfighters, to athletes. And I wanted to make an impact on the world, not just write about what needed to be done. And that journey was with me and with me. And I met Arvind maybe five years ago. And I came to IndieBio to write about the future of medicine. And I had all these questions. I'd never seen anyone answer them so fast. And I walked out of here stunned. I was a fan of IndieBio from the community, but I literally had in my head, I want to get to IndieBio someday. And uh, I did, didn't come from venture finance, came from other dimensions of finance, but I knew I could learn it. Been here about three years and have uh, Arvin has been my mentor, uh, an incredible teacher of the ins and outs of the VC world, just as I've been his mentor and, you know, bringing the artist inside him out more publicly now. And he's incredible. It's, it's really been an incredible uh you know, relationship that way and, and uh, so much richer for it. 
And and I think a lot of that comes through in the book. So let's let's dive into the book because decoding the world is a bit unconventional in terms of its format. And and maybe I'll direct this question to to Poe, given your experience as a writer. But how, how would you describe uh, what the two of you were seeking to to do in the book? Yeah, because. So you hear Decoding the World, a book about biotechs, about investing. You think it's a finance book, and you think it's, uh, say, probably a book about genetics. And in a way, it is. But it has much more real ambitions, which is, ultimately, can you write about science in such a way that it comes all the way around the circle and actually turns into art? And in turning to art, just like this Bioverse podcast, we want to get science out of its silo, connect it to people. We wanted to write a book that was integrating science into uh, climate change, into what's going on with AI and robotics, and integrate that science into pop culture and a long history of philosophy. So this book has chapters on Camus and Kafka and Nietzsche (laughs) that tie science into it. So we were looking for kind of exploding into a a unique fractal, uh, uh, this continuity between science and the rest of the world. And and Poe, I think that is exactly what struck me the most about the book, just how far wide ranging the topics you cover are and how many aspects of our lives biotechnology touches and can be utilized for. Um, and so I think that was the really the number one takeaway. And I guess, you know, Arvin, I'll, I'll direct this question to you. But to what extent do you think that that far reaching uh, aspect of how biotech can be applied reflects the world that you set out to create at IndieBio? I mean, I think it's really coming to fruition, to be honest. And we're just at the very beginnings of the revolution. And it's something I've come to appreciate in the past five years is how how long these ramps take, but how tall they actually are. Um, is they, they, I'm, I'm starting to really appreciate that they're far beyond any one person's imagination. Um, I just saw a company that is thinking about reinventing how we attract fish underwater to be more sustainable. Who would have thought about that problem? I certainly wouldn't have. Um, and I think, uh, you know, it seems like a small thing until you start to realize how many fish are being caught and the amount of pollution that's created. And, and it's just mind boggling what biology as a technology can reinvent. Uh, Poe and I did this, this uh, math a few years ago and realized it's a hundred trillion dollars of industry that needs to be reinvented. If we are going to save ourselves from the five earths problem which uh, I'll let Poe describe the five earth problem. Yeah. in the five earth problem, you'll see this in every startups pitch deck. It's like, how are we going to, how are we going to handle the fact that there's going to be 2.6 billion people more on the world by 2050. And <laughs> I laugh because we're like, that's, that's a small percentage of the actual problem. Cause the actual problem is that, Wealthier countries consume massively more of the world's resources than impoverished companies. And there are 145 million people joining the world's middle class every year on this planet. And there is a massive conversion to 3 billion people joining the current 1 billion people living at a Western standard living around the world. What that's going to do is 4x 
the demands on the planet, not go from 7 billion to 9 billion, which is a 20% improvement. We're talking about a 4X challenge for all of the precious metals, all of what we get out of the oceans, all of what we get out of the forests, 4X in production that has to be reinvented for our economy to stay on track. Our economy doubles around every 23 to 24 years. Economy, global economy today is about $100 trillion. In the next 23 years, it's going to double again, or with the movement of poverty, even more than that. So the incredible, incredible opportunity in sustainability, and this is the most important part. For, for too long, we've talked about sustainable investing or doing things sustainably as sort of a green premium, as a thing we sort of have to do, we didn't, and, and is essentially being a tax on otherwise good business. But what Arvin and I were identifying was that there's a hundred, not to say it's a tax, to see it as an opportunity, a hundred trillion. Do you want it or not? And and I love how you, you both frame this is it is a massive opportunity and the types of technologies that you have and continue to invest in through IndieBio are looking to take advantage of this opportunity and solve some of these sustainability issues uh, across a whole variety of sectors, um, I, I do want to just take what one step back. And you know, I, I, Arvind, I, I came across—I I think it was maybe in another podcast or article—a few stats from some of the, uh, you know, indie bio by the numbers. Essentially, could mm-hmm. you just give our listeners a sense of you know, how many companies have gone through the program, how much funding they've received in follow-on rounds, how much value has been created? Because I, I, the numbers are, are quite staggering. Let me tee up. Let me jump in and tee up some because Arvin may or may not know the exact numbers because it's amazing. Because I've been here for three years, and at the time, Arvin had done sixty-six companies. And just in that time, we've gone to one hundred and fifty-nine companies. Wow! And we are an accelerator, but it's important to understand we're part of a venture fund. We, we're part, long-term partners for our companies, so they uh, we have forty-four percent of our companies have at least one female co-founder. So we're extremely diverse. Our companies come from all over the world, 36 different countries, extremely diverse. We have double the highest rate of getting to price seed rounds of anyone else in the industry. And the average raise coming out of any bio is about $2.6 But Arvin, you can talk about some of the signature companies and the value they've created. Yeah, you know, some of the more famous companies like Memphis Meats, Perfect Day, Clara Foods, these are all companies reinventing food gel tour. Um, we have companies reinventing fashion, Microworks, uh, Alginet, others, uh, and construction, Lingrove, Carbix. These are making wood without trees, uh, concrete without CO2, uh, sequestering CO2. All of these companies together have now uh, aggregated value of $3.5 billion, which is absolutely staggering when you think about they came from nothing. And these aren't, you know, we didn't make these investments when they had already gotten a ton of market traction and, you know, um, someone else had figured out taking the risk. This is taking the risk on, you know, some scientists, an idea help them with the business and the business model and go from nothing to something. And then from something to a company that potentially could change history. So that's, that's really what's been done in the past, you know, six years. And it's just a thrilling, thrilling thing to be part of. And, uh, and, uh, you know, for me moving to Mayfield, 
the whole goal is to continue being uh, being able to to make this kind of impact and change, but with a lot higher dollars um, under under deployment. And so, 10xing what we can deploy per year is the actual goal. And my real goal in the end is to subvert the Series A and Sandhill Road tranche of um, of capital for startups in the same way we did for for pre-seed. Yeah, and 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 I I love this 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 sort of line of thinking, and the proof is in the pudding, so to speak. Right? I mean, you guys are essentially bringing you know sci-fi to, to life, right? It's becoming science fact these days, and there's a tremendous amount of value that has been created. So this this isn't sort of pie in the sky thinking. This is actually happening today, and there are real businesses being built. And I, I think that's critical for our listeners to understand. I I, I did want to sort of you know double click and dive into some the breadth of diversity that you guys are investing in, in terms of, of, of founders, you know, one of the, the, one of the key takeaways for me from the book was something I've actually thought a lot about. And we, and we think a lot about at, at Bioverge is this idea of, you know, funding the, the younger scientist, the scientist turned entrepreneur, right. It's the PhD student or postdoc who's looking to build a business and not necessarily follow a career in academia. So I think in many ways you've taken the traditional you know biotech venture creation model that typical you know biotech VCs follow, you know, where they fund seasoned management teams who have thirty plus years of drug development experience, and sort of flip that on its head at IndieBio, and sort of you know the best new companies will be led by the next generation of you know, call them, call them what you will, but rebel scientists, contrarians, you know, pick your favorite term, but it's those folks that aren't getting funded by traditional VCs that go to IndieBio. Those are the companies that you're building supporting could you maybe talk a little bit about sort of that playbook it's, it's almost in my mind kind of a, applying the tech playbook to building biotech companies yeah you're you're absolutely right there your your intuition serves you well the the whole point of building indie bio was that um there is a huge number of people that are under leveraged that have incredible ideas are incredibly creative and haven't been given a chance and why haven't they been given a chance? Because there's few people with lots of capital that want to minimize the risk in deploying the capital. And so they give it to their friends and people they know and people they, they trust. Um, and to me, that fundamentally, fundamentally limits society's advancement because uh, you just need – you need more people. There's no, there's no one group of people that's going to continue to be geniuses over and over in advanced society. Uh, I, I'm, I just am not elitist enough to believe that. Um, and so what is the thing that's really holding everyone back? The ability to take risk. And so IndieBio is a way of refactoring the risk equation. And that comes from my base jumping days. You know, you don't, you don't have, when you're base jumping, you're not eliminating risk. You're mitigating it by refactoring it. And so, um, you know, exactly the same. We built a lab. You know, companies could come in, work in the lab to de-risk their their science, create product. We could help them build a business model. And then they go out on Demo Day showing a real company, a real company, uh, not a project, which is what they were when they came in. And um, that is what's enabled a lot of this uh, movement to grow. And I, I just got to ask one follow-up question. I mean, do you see this new model 
that you both are pursuing, uh, essentially in terms of sort of democratizing access to sort of VC, um, for, for lack of a better way to say it. Do you see this sort of coexisting with the traditional way biotechs are, are built, or do you see this maybe consuming the, the, the more traditional way? I think it's both. I mean, while this has been happening, exploding what Arvin did, and there's now a lot of uh, other organizations taking the model and reproducing it everywhere. We've never had more startups for more postdocs um, that than we're getting today. But it's not like the old model is somehow no longer operating. And um, and I do think that they merge down the road, which is valued ex- expertise and networks and know-how in these industries is really valuable. And it has to come into the companies, whether it's coming in a CSO role or a CEO role or some part of senior management team, they do come in and they do blend down the road. Um, but it is offering, most importantly, a very different idea set. When, when you democratize biotech and VC, what happens? What happens is you get, yes, Indy, Arvin and Nibao, we created many incredibly wild drug companies, therapeutics companies, healthcare companies. But we also people started applying it into all sorts of spaces they had not been applying it before. And that's what sort of IndieBio enabled. When, once you democratized it, the scientists saw opportunities that conventional, traditional biotech didn't, such as food, such as materials, such as energy. Uh, such as sustainability and planetary health entirely, such as pollinating, you know, saving the while saving the bees, like all these fields that people did not think of as the domain of biotech through this vector democratization by reprogramming biology and engineering that biology has led to disruption in all of the world's markets, not just therapeutics. And Paul, I think that's, that's an incredibly important point. I think when Arvin, when you started IndieBio, right? I mean, you've talked a little bit about some of the, the 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 food, some of the sustainability type companies you invested in. I mean, back when you started IndieBio, that wasn't really an investable proposition back then, right? VCs would sort of run the other way. So, could you talk a little bit about your your thought process? Why you thought some of these other areas of applying biotech to were actually or, or was an investable space you could build sustainable and valuable companies when it seemed like everyone else was running the other way? Yeah, I mean, well, first it didn't exist. So when I started IndieBio, nobody thought biotech was could be applied to food other than making uh, processed foods, you know, or the way it was already applied. Um, and no one thought about biology as something that was applied to anything except for human health in therapeutics. Life sciences equaled therapeutics. End of story. Um, and so the thing that got me excited was this, you know, with my undergrad days when I was a genetic engineer and understanding that genetic engineering, like that was my degree in genetic engineering, and understanding what genetic engineering could, could possibly do one day um, in its broad applications, just in the late nineties, it was incredibly slow and cumbersome. Um, by 2015, it had gotten super fast, uh, very cheap. And, uh, and there was a technology stack that looked similar to tech. So it then took us a couple secular trends, like broad reaching trends, like lots of postdocs, you know, not having a job in academia, 
but being incredibly talented and and um, and creative and and wanting to forge your own path. Um, but then the other big secular trend is climate change, and that is what's providing the change the change in consumer behavior that biology as a technology could could provide solutions for. And that was the sort of big aha between batch one, two, and three that was like, okay, this is this is an entire category, planetary health, to continue to dive into. Um, and, you know, if you look at batch one, it was almost all planetary health right away. Um, so I think it was already there, just no one had unlocked it yet. And there, there's one recent example that literally just came across my LinkedIn feed, and I don't know what batch this this company was in, but I just saw something where MicroWorks has partnered yeah. with Hermes to create a a, a mushroom based leather bag, right, made from mycelium. Like that is incredible to me. Yeah, um, and they were batch five, right? Like so, the, this is what I mean by the revolutions take a long time to go, and and they're the tip of the spear on the fashion side. So this is. This is a revolution that's going to unfold over decades, not years. That, that is the remarkable thing to me. And when you have a revolution unfolding over decades, our imaginations today, including mine, cannot, cannot encompass or comprehend all the things that will happen in the due course. In the same way, you know, Tim Berners-Lee and everyone early in the internet could not have imagined all the things that have happened because of the internet as a framework for communication. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, as, as we're sort of thinking about out to, to future decades, I, I do want to circle back to uh, the, the healthcare angle of things. Uh, there, there's a, a lot of a uh, few chapters devoted to the concept of longevity, longevity based investments. Um, you know, at, at Biovers, that's one of our interests as well. And there's one particular chapter in the book called What's Your Purpose? Finding a sense of meaning in life is linked to our health. And just for our listeners, I, I just I want to read just two two or three sentences here because I, I think this is, is 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 quite incredible. It didn't matter if you were rich or poor, black or white, healthy or ill. Across every cohort, controlling for all variables, if you had a sense of purpose, you stayed healthy. And if you didn't have a sense of purpose, you didn't stay healthy. It was more powerful for your health than exercising every day. It was more important than smoking or drinking. It was pretty much the strongest determinator of your future health. That is just incredibly fascinating to me. You know, Poe, I, I think this was a chapter that you wrote. Could you could you talk a little bit about this concept of finding your purpose and why it's so important to our health and overall well-being? Yeah. Uh, so but I first want to assure listeners, because that's what you just described. <laughs> Neil sounds like, sure, uh, whatever. Is that real science? <laughs> you know, 7000 people tracked by the University of Michigan for a, over half a decade. These are all people uh, slightly over 50, and they basically tracked them towards the age of 60. 7,000 people, this epidemiology data. Now, the epidemiology doesn't get much love these days. Well, all we can do, we can do RNA-seq. What do we need, you know, checkboxes from epidemiologists for? But it was fascinating that it was such a fundamental driver, and it questions, you know, this what we're across the whole book. It's like the book's got philosophy in it. It's got genetics, but like the answer isn't always just in the genes. 
The answer isn't just in the genes. You want to reprogram longevity for longer life? I got one thing for you. Fall in love with something passionately and do it with all of your heart. And you added 10, 20 years to your life. And, and so the book acknowledges, addresses, integrates the fact that science has insane, incredible answers to things you could not imagine they could do. We can replace all of our leather belts and all of our leather shoes with something we grow from a fungi. Never thought of that. But the rest of life matters. The choices we make in life matter, what we design our purpose for. Now, I will say this study did not tease out why that was. What was the, what was the mechanics of it? You know, where in our cells is this sense of purpose? Where in our neurotransmitters is a sense of purpose? Where in my veins is a sense of purpose or my brain? It was a conception of your life. It was a mental state and perception of your life that somehow regulates everything going on in our body rather than everything going on in our body regulates our mental frame. And the chapter, ultimately, to be clear, because this sounds great, right? This sounds tempting. We did something we've never been done in 300 years of people publishing books. We abandoned the chapter midway and called it a failed experiment (laughs) (laughs) because we didn't quite know where to go with this powerful information, but we wanted to share it. And I think it's it's incredibly powerful, and it actually jives with other studies I've seen. I I think actually uh, David Eagleman wrote a book called Incognito, and he talks about a study uh, of nuns' brains, um, and it was it was looking for signs of Alzheimer's disease, and it showed that a third of the brains tested at autopsy showed signs of Alzheimer's, but cognitive tests. Uh, had revealed that during the nun's life, there were no symptoms of the disease. And and the one determining factor was, did nuns have, you know, quote unquote, this sense of purpose and did they stay active into old age? And so I think what you highlight here jives nicely with with that study. And it's just, it's very, very, I think, powerful for for folks to to keep in mind. Um, Poe, you also mentioned in, in one of the chapters that, you know, in many respects, humans are already optimized for longevity. Could, could you talk a little more about what you mean by that? Yeah. So thank you for asking about this. But like we're trying to use longevity to extend our life or live better, or live healthier while we have it. Um, but let's understand the starting point and let's understand why it's scientifically relevant. Humans like many of, say, the mice or the rats or the worms that we do longevity studies on, we have quite a fast metabolism for the early part of our life. But then we shift gears into a low and slow metabolism, which these other organisms we evaluate in science don't have. And so we live our productive – it's not clear evolutionary why we're needed on the planet after the age of 50 at all. Uh, But we have adapted to live in this phase, and the model organisms we use in longevity science don't have this. So, for example, a lot of longevity science is done on mice and – they have a super fast metabolism. It doesn't seem to translate to humans. I would love to see a longevity study on bats because a bat is about the same size as a mouse. It's got very similar systems, has an even higher metabolism, 
But they magically, while a mice would live for two years, a bat can live for 40 or 50 years. That's already an optimized animal like a human. If you can make a difference in a bat, then you're more, more likely to make a difference on a human. Yeah, and I, and I think that's really interesting, right? So obviously, there, there's lots of issues with animal models. I think uh, clearly one of the issues of using bats as an animal model is exactly their long lifespan. And so are, are you going to conduct a, a 20 or 30 year study? It makes it challenging to produce any sort of translatable results in a meaningful time period. Um, but but Poe, d- diving into this just at one, one level, l- level deeper, you, you talk about uh, metformin. Uh, as you know, a wonder drug, you know, a lot of people have done a lot of, of studies, you know, it is prescribed off label as sort of a longevity drug magic pill. Mm -hmm. Um, but you actually provide an example of how it counteracts some of the beneficial effects of exercise, for example, and how it may not be this sort of, you know, quote unquote magic pill. Um, could, could you maybe talk a little bit about that? And then you, you also give an example, I believe of a company named Mitanova who is doing things a little differently at, at IndieBio. Yeah, sure. So I want to be very clear, just to contextualize this, that uh, I'm not a medical doctor. A lot of people are on metformin. I don't want to alarm them. And uh, and metformin largely has been fantastic for people off their biomarkers. That said, it's important to understand there's always a trade-off in biology. No such thing as free lunch. And uh, extensive studies of metformin have shown, not that it's bad for you, no, 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 it's not saying anything like that, but just that it counteracts the benefits of exercise. So if you take metformin and you get a lot of exercise, it's not that you're worse off, but that you're not getting as much benefit out of the exercise as you normally would. And exercise is ultimately better for you than metformin. So we uh, we weren't attacking that with the with the Mitanova product, and we have a, a new one called Panacea Longevity that's taking a different approach to help people. It gives people the benefits of fasting uh, without having to fast, and it basically is picking up the human metabolites that are associated with fasting and providing them to you. Um, you know, we're always looking for different solutions around here. The Mitanova product is not on the market, so I don't recommend anyone going to try to look for it. But it does uh, just both help us understand an important point here in longevity, which is that the longer you live, the likely you're going to get cancer. Every time your cells divide, you get a little bit of cancer, your cells proofread it, and hopefully we don't get cancer. But the longer you live, the more cancer comes along. So you really have to be in anything that's going to work on longevity, anti-cancer. Uh, you know, everyone's taking antioxidants, but antioxidants have been associated with more cancer. Like, understand there's trade-offs. Look for the trade-offs. Don't accept the idea that there's a free lunch uh, or you'll be fooled. Yeah, and I think that's a really critical point, right? So there's always some some sort of trade-off. Um, I, I want to dive into a point uh, around sort of g- genetics and, and Arvind. You know, there's a chapter in the book where you have a great discussion. I think it was in a nail salon about this this notion of designer babies. Um, Can you first clarify for our listeners what we mean when we're talking about, you know, designer babies? And then can you talk a little bit about why you don't actually think that's a future reality we're going to find ourselves living in? Yeah, I'm sure everyone's heard like about CRISPR and the first, you know, 
next, you know, the, the little next thing people say, CRISPR babies. Uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we can genetically modify, we can find anything and, and edit it. And, uh, and of course, our future is going to be all designer babies and what kind of horrifying future do we have? Um, again, nothing is that simple. Um, the, the truth of the matter is it's very, very difficult to edit specific genes in a large genome, um, reliably without, without, uh, any sort of errors and even more so, and people are like, oh, well, what about this whole idea of sequencing our, our babies? And so we could just choose which ones are, are the best. Right. And that's that's what I hear, you know, more sophisticated people like start to be be talking about like, OK, fine. If we can't just edit our babies to be exactly what we want without it being a little bit risky. What if we could just kind of like keep pulling the uh, jackpot uh, handle until we see what we want. Right. Um, and it's you know, it's hard to sequence. It's hard to sequence reliably where we really know what's in there because you have a limited number of cells. And so. Uh, the way the technology works is you're actually reading a lot of cells and averaging across what you read because it's not perfect, the the reads that we're having. And so you 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 make an average to get to an idea of what, oh, okay, most likely it's a C, not a T, right? Um, well, when you've got one or two cells from a from a embryo or a developing embryo, you don't have that room. And so how do you know it's a C or a T? Well, you, you normally would be averaging. So, you know, the way it's done now is, well, you go get mom, dad, grandpa's DNA, and you're looking for very specific problems. And so, therefore, you can use that supplemental information to understand what your actual risk is for a disease for your child. Um, and that is a very valid, high-quality technique. But to say we can look for eye color <laughs> using this technique, which is involving hundreds of genes, all that have extremely small or even not understood ways of interacting with, with each other to actually determine your eye color um, is so far away right now that it's not sensical to even talk about as something that's a, a, applicable to designer babies. Intelligence, all the things, all the qualities that we would want to design for, what we call phenotypes, um, you know, intelligence creativity you know what do you, it, it, these are all complex traits that that as poe said earlier you can't just find them in your genes yeah and i think that's a that's a, a really interesting concept and i i'm not sure if a lot of people sort of understand the limits of dna testing and and poe there, there's sort of multiple places in the book that you you talk about the this concept of you know dna being the pl- blueprint However, that's not what actually determines the outcomes, right? It's, it's translating or interpreting that blueprint uh, and executing on that blueprint is what really matters. Um, yeah, I would actually, I would actually say let's push that metaphor, that terminology a little different. Blueprint is not it. Uh, it's really a machine shop with fabulous machines, and our body has twenty-five thousand of these incredible machines. Now. Which ones you use and how you use them, ah, that's up to you as you live your life. And so, for example, if you clone a cat, everyone would think, if we clone the cat, it should look just like the other cat. Nope. 
you would think if you have the genes for dark skin or being black, if you think you have genes that you would have dark skin or be black. Nope. <laughs> it's whether you use the genes. And whether you use the genes, all these genes are turned on and off by other tools called small RNAs. And those are highly fluid throughout our bodies. We have vastly more small RNAs floating around our body than we have actual genome. And they are little snippets from our genome that float around, but not just float around from ours. People do a 23andMe test, and it identifies, hey, you may not have known, but you're 2% Portuguese or 1% Thai, when in fact, you're also 5% eggplant and 3% <laughs> celery. And, and why? Because we exchange these small RNAs, these machine-turning-on tools, with the plants that we eat. When we drink a glass of milk, we pick up small RNAs that turn on and off our genes. Did you know that you can alter your gene expression by drinking a glass of milk? This is so fundamental to the core of understanding what genetic is that it almost averts the word code, the genetic code. Is it a code? Yeah, it's all in there and all comes off, but it's not deterministic the way we have always assumed it was. It's an if-then system. It's a, if it gets hot, do this. If you go to high altitude, do this. If you get hurt, do this. If that doesn't happen, do this other thing. And we ended up writing the lines like the environment is the greatest uh, gene editor, that nature and nurture are one in the same. And it is how you nurture something or the environment that you expose it to that impacts which genes get turned on and off. And that's incredibly powerful because we've been led to believe it's it, nature versus nurture. Um, and, and you're reframing the question, um, which I think is, is really, really interesting. To be clear, for, for 1% of people who have a particular you know, monogenetic trait that gives them a very different gene, and that's the only one they've got, they do suffer these health traits uh, for sure. And and there's people in my family with these situ dealing with these situations for sure, very intimately familiar with that. But that is a small portion of the people, and even the rest of the genome is still operating in this if-then way. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of the advent and advances in gene therapy that we're seeing today, right, are targeting those types of somewhat rare monogenic diseases uh, that are the result of a you know single point mutation, for example. And, and there has been some success in, in the field there. Um, and, and, you know, Paul, there, there's actually another place in the book where you say that the future of gene editing gene therapy isn't actually with the genes. It's it's with, I believe you, you had mentioned uh, mRNA um, and, and turning on and off the genes as opposed to editing the genome. Right. Most fundamentally, we can control which machines are turned on and which machines are turned off and how often they, how active they are. And and so we don't need to edit the genome to impact someone's human. We have a company right now, just for example, they, they're a crop science company, you know, and people, it takes four years, five years to design a new crop. You have to figure out the genes. And like, why can't we just help the crops that are in the ground right now? 
Why can't we help them? When when that cold snap came in mid-February, came across all of Texas and the South, and like San Antonio was drowning in snow, you think the $5 billion of rice that's grown in Texas was that was going to have a huge hit for that cold snap? You think they were like happy to wait five years for a new crop? We can just go modulate the genes of plants in the ground, and we can do that in our bodies too. And in the therapeutic space, nucleic acid medicines, this is absolutely fascinating yeah i mean talking about massive opportunity out there that that's certainly an area i think there's there's a lot of a lot of interest from investors there's a lot of research going on um so i think fascinating um i i have one last quote from the book that i'd like to share and that's that revolutions aren't just zero sum they reframe and reorganize the world along new lines poe with with that that quote um, in mind, what do you see in store for the future of IndieBio? IndieBio, the ivory basement where we work, um, is a way of thinking. Yes, it's a, it's a community. It's, we are here for the people who maybe aren't picked up by the rest of the system, and we will always be. And we will be here for uh, as a network to try to create and storytell and, and, and inspire an entire generation. That's what we really want. We want to inspire an entire generation of people that stop thinking of, say, biology or sciences, that silo or, oh, I don't understand it. I don't want to do that. Like help un- understand what's happening here as a generation. Understand that biology, biotech is – a domain that if you can go learn it, you can impact the world in so many ways. And Arvin, you had briefly mentioned this before, but what are your thoughts on how your new role at Mayfield is a continuation uh, or a departure from what you built at IndieBio? Yeah, it's a, it, it, in a sense, it's a continuation and departure, right? Uh, it's well said. It's a departure in the sense that I'm focusing a lot more time and energy on fewer companies. Um, but it's a continuation of the purpose uh, and the change I want to create in the world, which is to extend this revolution um, across all of society. And to do that, we need more companies um, working to not just get consumed by other um, established companies and then shuttered, (laughs) but for these companies to grow and then shutter the incumbents. And it's, it's hard. Why? Because venture capitalists oftentimes are seeing a big paycheck and founders are seeing a big paycheck when their revolutionary company is being um, offered an acquisition by the incumbents, you know, to put it out to pasture. It's hard to say no to that. And, you know, one of the things that I want to do is be able to help guide and, and build companies that uh, are clear disruptors to the, to the status quo um, and uh, working more deeply with, with companies to do so is, is one of the answers. And I think by, you know, leadership happens not by talking, but by doing. And if I can lead uh, from Sand Hill Road, I'm... I'm sure that others on Sand Hill Road will follow suit. 
I, I certainly uh, concur and, and hope that to be the case. Um, how can folks, if they want to learn more about um, what you guys are doing at IndieBio, uh, if they want to get in touch with you, if they want to find your book, how, how can people learn more? Well, at IndieBio, uh, my email is on the website. And go to the website, look, see what the companies are doing. It's amazing. Be inspired. I would say one most fundamental thing, which is that you don't have to be a geneticist or a scientist to come to IndieBio. Our companies need marketing people. They need filmmakers. They need HR people. They need everything. So we hope that people of all domains see we're building businesses and businesses need everybody. That's right. And for me, you could get a hold of me. Um, my my email is everywhere. Um, it's arvind at mayfield.com. You know, email me. Um, and uh, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm one of the easier people in the world to get in touch with. <laughs> well, Poe and Arvind, uh, it was a true pleasure having you both on the show today. Thanks so much for joining us. Awesome. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Neil. Really appreciate it. Neil, these Two guys are bursting with ideas. What did you take away from the discussion? Yeah, I thought that was a, a really wide-ranging discussion. It was exactly what I thought would happen um, from the discussion. I mean, you, you can see that just the breadth of technologies that Poe and Arvind are involved at, uh, involved with investing in. Um, and it's everything, again, from longevity-based research in human healthcare to, you know, d- you know CRISPR and, and DNA testing to you know, companies that are using you know, mushrooms to replace uh, hand, you know, leather bags and things like that. Um, so I think it's, it's really interesting the breadth of how biotech can be applied to solve you know, fundamental problems, not just in healthcare, but really across many industries. I'm still taken by Gupta's history as a base jumper. But you know, a base jumper has a parachute. Well, they play in a high-risk pool of companies in many ways, Indie Bio is about de-risking companies to attract investment. How do investors look at Indie Bio companies? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, it's a really good question, and I think in many ways, you know, Indie Bio has become a sort of stamp of approval for many companies, right? So I think when Indie Bio first started, people what weren't quite sure what to make of the the cohorts coming out of Indie Bio, and I think given uh, you you heard Arvin talk about some of the proof points and value creation. Uh, and I think that, you know, their, their companies, if you look at the value of their combined portfolio, something in the order of like $3.2 billion, I think is what Arvind said, right? So that, I mean, that, that's, that's massive value that have been created. So I think now when companies go through Demo Day, when companies have, you know, Indie Bio uh, as an investor on their cap table, I think in many ways it is a stamp of approval because you heard Arvind and Poe talk about a lot of the things that they bring to the table. And, you know, they're not... They're not investing in science projects. They're they're taking those ideas and they're turning them into investable businesses. And you even at the end of the interview, you heard Poe talk about some of the available job opportunities with these companies. They're businesses. It's not just scientists. They need people uh, with you know marketing expertise or you know HR expertise or whatever it may be. It's not just the scientists. It's all the business wrapped around the science that Indie Bio I think is instrumental in helping companies create and build. The other thing that Indie Bio has been early at doing is embracing the the full bio economy, understanding the potential for biotechnology to reshape the economy beyond healthcare into food, manufacturing, energy. Where are traditional biotech investors in that regard? 
I think they're they're quickly coming up the learning curve. Uh, you heard Arvin talk about this notion of you know investing in biotech in in food, for example, and you know at, at that time most VCs couldn't wrap their head around around that, and so people just weren't doing that at the time. You know, if you fast forward to today, right now it's a very common investment theme. There are, uh, you know, Beyond Meat is a is a is a public company. Um, so the, you know, there, there's 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 publicly traded, you know, companies in this space today, and there's been a lot of value creation. So now it is an investable space, um, but it wasn't the case when IndieBio was first was first started. And so you know, it, it's this concept of I think sustainability. So you know, a lot of these things. Are you know could have a dramatic impact on the environment, and a lot of them could be better for health in their own right. Um, so I think in many ways, IndieBio was was far ahead of the curve uh, in in this area. Well, until next time. Thanks, Danny. Thanks for listening. The BioVerge podcast is a product of BioVerge Inc., an investment platform that funds visionary entrepreneurs with the aim of transforming healthcare. BioVerge provides access and enables everyone to invest in highly vetted healthcare startups on the cutting edge of innovation. From family offices and registered investment advisors to accredited and non-accredited individuals. To learn more, go to BioVerge.com. This podcast is produced for BioVerge by the Levine Media Group. Music for this podcast is provided courtesy of the Jonah Levine Collective.